Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. Pod bless everybody. I'm your host of OPP, Corey Cambridge. And before we get started with this amazing episode, I want to tell you about my other show, Silent Giants. Silent Giants is a podcast that highlights the superstars behind the scenes of popular culture. Ever wondered who made the MTV logo? Did you know the person who wrote Earth, Wind & Fire's hit song September? Also wrote the theme song for the hit 90s TV show Friends? On Silent Giants, we learn more about these amazing people and dig deep to learn more about their most famous works. Be sure to check out Silent Giants on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever else you listen to podcasts. Now, let me introduce you to our special guest of OPP. I'm Linda Palaccio, host of A Taste of the Past. This is OPP. Pod bless everybody and welcome back to another episode of OPP. Other People's Podcasts is America's number one podcast discovery platform that highlights your favorite podcasters and the dope shows they created. I'm your host, Corey Cambridge. Our special guest this episode is culinary historian Linda Palaccio, host of the amazing podcast, A Taste of the Past. On this podcast, Linda takes us on a weekly journey through the history of food. Tune in for interviews with authors, scholars, and culinary experts who discuss food culture from ancient Mesopotamia and Rome to the grazing tables and deli counters of today. In this interview, we're going to learn more about Linda. We chat about her career as a culinary historian. We get her podcaster's picks. And of course, we chat about her dope show, A Taste of the Past. So now, on to my exclusive interview with Linda Palaccio. What's up, Linda? How you doing? Hi, Corey. Thanks for thanks for having me here. This is really cool. It's, as I said, it's interesting and also a little intimidating to be on the other end of the mic for a change. It's a pleasure. You have such good energy. Well, then, you know, I try to keep it up when it's you know something about when the when you know the tape. It's not the tape anymore. You say in the old days <laughs> when it's rolling, that's sort of the energy goes on. You know that little. That little inner voice says, okay, you're on. Yeah. <laughs> you know, ready Yo, for my close-up. You've got that, like, Katie Couric energy. Oh, okay. That Meredith Vieira energy. <laughs> All right. I'll take that as a compliment. Thank yeah. You. So we were hanging out earlier before you hit the play button, right. and you were telling me you're from South Bend, Indiana. Uh, Indiana. Yeah. Mayor Pete. So wait, did, did you go to uh, Notre Dame? No. I was, I was at another school at the time. My husband went to Notre Dame, however. Where'd you end up going to school? Uh, Sarah Lawrence College in, That's in, in New York. In New York, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. Is, is that all girls' school? It used to be. Now it's not. It's co-ed. It went co-ed in the seventies. Okay, late seventies. What was it like in South Bend? You know, I didn't know from anything different, so it was just fine. But <laughs> I traveled early on. Um, as a, a teenager, I had gone on a, a few student trips to a lot of other countries, and I said, hmm, "I'm not staying." <laughs> So anyway, I met my husband. He was from New York, and I went. I'm there. Wait, so so wait, how'd that happen? Because you you were going to school at Sarah Lawrence, and he was going. No, to I was at Purdue at that time. Oh, okay, got it, got it. Boilermaker. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, that's what's up. <laughs> you, you like Drew Brees? Well, he was way past my time. Yeah, were you a fan? Yeah, I guess you got to be as a much fan. as I was. <laughs> <laughs> do, do, do he plays football, right? <laughs> do you follow sports? Yes, I do. One school. 
What's Notre school? Dame. Notre Dame. Okay. Okay. Right. Hey, you guys, you guys have won a couple things. Yeah. Yeah. It could have been a better season so far, but you know, it's okay. You guys, you guys have some titles. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's, it's fun. You know, I, I get into the action. So I was doing some research on you cause I love your show. And then I was Thank able you. to do some research on you as well. And you have the most amazing title, a culinary historian. Right. That's, that's what, an amazing job title. Well, you know, there's a, there, <laughs> For a long time, there was this um, division, or some on on both sides, fine line, a kind of a skewed line between food history and culinary history. Food history being the more scientific, you know, where where does the food come from, you know, tracing its background, and culinary history is more about what we ate, when we ate it, how we ate it sitting down at the table what was the tablescape like you know it was it sort of encompasses everything about food and cooking and eating but it's food history as well so now a lot of the you know the scholars used to think they were on the food history side of things and that you know culinary history just wasn't scholarly enough now they've come to realize that it does encompass everything from food history to dining and um, you know how people wear food ways where people got their food and how they prepared it so that is really food history didn't wasn't really concerned with how it was prepared and now that's all sort of you know come under the same umbrella uh, tell me the the history of of how food became a passion of yours in your life Ooh, I guess I always like to eat <laughs> <laughs> that was pretty easy um, and I have to say, my mother was she was a she was a good cook. She was a cook of economic means. I mean, she managed to make a good meal out of whatever she had, and um, primarily was a single mom for a long time. So you know, it was things were things were tight, but she always put a good meal on the table. So I learned about how to put it together and, and what it was there, and I and I enjoyed watching her. And then she involved me, um, involved me, or <laughs> actually made me <laughs> have to cook some meals for my younger sister but um but that was all good that was fine then when i got married my husband and i uh, three days later got on a boat to italy and we lived in italy for five years yeah it was rough (laughs) (laughs) that sounds terrible (laughs) would everyone do that and that's where i fell in love with actually with food and food history and culinary history that's where it all came together for me you know, what's wild is that growing up, I'm from Virginia, and I didn't have a lot of friends from around the world or, you know, even across the country. So it really wild me when I moved to New York City and people weren't eating, like, seafood all the time. Like, in, <laughs> right. in Virginia, everyone's eating crabs and fish, and that's just a part of your, like, daily diet. In South Bend, what were some of, like, the regional things that were native to the area that is very made it very very unique. You know, I was very young. I you know, I uh, was I lived there until what I was 17 and went off to school. Um, it, so was I paying attention to what was regional, you know, at, as far as the um, the county fairs, the 4H fairs, you know, you got the typical carnival food. But, you know, that was the only thing I could remember as a kid. <laughs> but my mother came from a Polish background. Her parents were both Polish and my father came from the back hills of Tennessee. So she was trying to cook foods that he liked 
and yet she really didn't really know that much of Polish food background. She was sort of had to start cooking. Her mother got ill very young, and she had to start cooking as a young woman, so she just sort of put together whatever she saw her relatives cooking, and I can't tell you what the regional specialties were because I lived within my own family, and yeah. that's what I knew, and, and I didn't really, as you were saying, you didn't have friends from you know all over the country, all over the world. Uh, I wasn't sure what other people ate for dinner every night. You know, I, yeah. I knew what my family ate, and that was, you know, that was about it. When you got to Italy, was that when you realized you wanted to study food? Yes. Tell me the story of that. Like, how how did that come to be? Um, it was sort of a, an organic process. It kind of happened naturally because number one, we had to eat, and I had to get some food, and I had to learn the language and go to the market and buy some food. It's kind of intimidating because you have to understand this was a long time ago. <laughs> it was in 1968. And um, to go and buy some meat, you had to go to the local butcher store around the corner, and there were a lot of dead animals hanging from the doorway. So after I would kind of like sneak my way between the bodies, you know, and I would look at something and point and, and manage to get something, found out that I got some horse meat that was not exactly fresh. The first oh. time I bought, tried to buy hamburger, because I said, I can make a hamburger. You know? <laughs> <laughs> um, and then, you know, little by little, it all just, it all came together. And uh, and there were not supermarkets. There were markets. There were small groceries uh, where you would could get, you know, little, like a little superette here in, in New York, a little bodega. Um and you'd get everything, even your wine and oil, if you brought your own bottle to fill it up. Uh, it was really a, a, an incredible experience at that time. It was, you know, then the changing, a, a, a real changing point came about um, four years later. This was in Rome, in the city. So about, I guess about four years later, there was a real change and supermarkets opened. Not huge ones, but, you know, but basically supermarkets. And that made life a lot easier for um, someone who wasn't used to going into the Italian you know, stores and buying food. How did you know that you were going to turn your love for food um, into a career? I, 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 I couldn't pinpoint when that happened, really. It was just always there, and that was always my passion. So while I was doing a lot of other things, food and, and well, food history, the history and well, art, art history, history of food, living in Rome, you're surrounded by history. That was always there in the back of my mind. So when we moved back to New York, um, then I, at that point I had a family and I, you know, I was doing the mother thing and, and um, volunteered a lot and then worked in politics. And, but I always wanted to do food. So then I joined an organization called the Culinary Historians of New York. I saw a little ad in the New York Times for a program by Karen Hess for um, the Carolina Rice Kitchen, and she was going to do a presentation on her book. I said, oh my goodness, this is right up my alley, I wanna go, and from that was it. I, I was a member of the Culinary Historians ever since, and um, still do programming for them. And um, that led me to really wanting to do more with it. Along came the Food Network. 
Now, this was before. It actually was the Food Network and was up and running, but a friend of mine was working there, and she was all a flutter, like, oh, we'll never be ready in time. I said, what? What are you talking about? And she told me. I went, okay. Do they need writers? Do they need content? And she said, yeah, call this number. And next thing you know, I was working at the Food Network. What? <laughs> yeah. Wow, wow. And we went, We I was there about... Um, two three months before we went on the air and then we and then we went up on the air you know big time on in 94 oh it took a long time for us to really 1994 took a long time for it to really get widespread why is it important for do you feel like chefs or cooks to learn the history uh, of food and the story of food well I think it's always important for for chefs to know what came before them and where this dish that they're cooking, did they invent it or, well, you know, everything is sort of a derivative of something else. And I think it makes them appreciate the food. Just like walking into the, the butcher shop through the dead animals hanging in the doorway, you got to know where your food comes from. Those animals are not just hanging there by chance. Okay, if you're going to eat meat, you got to know that it, it's from a dead animal hanging in the doorway, okay? If you're going to cook a particular dish that maybe has been cooked for two years or 20 or 100, kind of should know where it came from. Mm. I, yeah, I don't think it, that's not, I don't know if it's actually necessary, but as far as knowing your ingredients, yeah. I think, it's, I think it's, it's important. It makes anyone who, the more information a person, I always say, having interviewed a lot of chefs back in the day, um, the, most in, the most successful chefs, um, I felt, and in, were the intelligent ones who had, who, who gave it some thought, who had some life experience, who, you know, have, have a little background to what they were doing. Mm. Uh, for folks who, who want to get into uh, the culinary historian History. realm and world, uh, how did they become a member of the Culinary Historians of New York? Well, there are culinary historian groups all over the country. In New York, you can go to culinaryhistoriansny.org. Number one, we have monthly lectures on a whole variety of topics. And we also give scholarships to people in the field of food history and culinary history. And that is funded by the Julia Child Foundation. They have given us a generous grant wow. um, to give scholarships to people. Um, now, I don't know anything about culinary school, but do they teach the his like culinary history at culinary school as well? Or is it mostly about like just cooking? If you're going to cooking school, you're learning to cook. Okay. Uh, but in if you are going into a food studies program, you'll learn more about the history of food. They they have they now have Jacques Pepin and Julia Child actually were the first two to ever start a um, a food studies program per se. I mean, you, you know, they're in history. You could find things. You know, by studying history, you could find some things out. Um, but at Boston University, they put together a program on food studies. And that's where it all started. Now just about every major university has some type of food studies program. Okay. Um, you know what, Linda? We're going to take a quick break. When we get back, we're going to get to your podcast, A Taste of the Past. Okay. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. 
LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. And we're back. How'd you first discover the medium of podcasting? Well, actually, the actual way I came across it was from my son. He was doing, who happens to be a chef as well, <laughs> he was doing a show on this, this radio network called Heritage Radio Network. That's another story, and it's a, long, that's a longer story. And he didn't have time for that. He and his, and his now wife uh, were doing a show called Urban Forager. It was a, they were just starting out. The innovator of that was Patrick Martins, who started Heritage Foods USA. They support small farmers and, and protecting heritage breeds and you know, small producers selling to restaurants, chefs, and they have an online business. So he also, Patrick Martins, also brought slow food to the U.S. And he thought, well, maybe I'll do what the founder of Slow Food did. He started a radio station to drive more people to the website. So he started this little radio station in two shipping containers in the back of Roberta's Pizza Restaurant in Bushwick, Brooklyn. And he got a few of his friends, people he sold meats to. He sold meats to my son for one of his restaurants and, and asked him would they do some shows. And so he was doing a show and he said, oh, Mom, I, I don't have time for this. He said, you're the one who should be doing a podcast. I said, you're right. Wow. That's how it got started. Now... Backing up a bit, not podcasting, but a radio show. After I left the Food Network, um, when it got wheels, several of us left. And uh, several of us worked together on a website called Minute Meals, which spawned a couple of books as well. And an offshoot of Minute Meals, and again, trying to drive traffic to the website of Minute Meals, um, one of the guys uh, working for it, said, well, why don't we start a radio show? And he had, he had some connection. It wasn't regular, it wasn't a podcast. It was a terrestrial radio show, but it was only in a few like, bizarre markets and I don't know, all over, the, all over the country. I was the executive producer. I got guests and topics and there was one host, a good friend of mine, in her apartment in New York City with a hot seat, you know, to record from. There was another host who was in his in the studio where it was hosted from um, in Rhode Island. And then there was me doing it from my phone. So there were three of us communicating by phone and get this, by fax. Wow. <laughs> to fax me. To put on a radio show every day for how long was it? Oh, it was long. An hour or two hours called Everyday Kitchen. <laughs> it was my very first guest that I booked was Julia Child. Wow. Yeah. And we had wonderful guests from the food world who just talk about, we actually gave recipes on the air and sort of like went through how to cook a meal on the air. And it was, it was interesting. It was not, not something I would want to do again. <laughs> Tell me the origins of A Taste of the Past and like how that concept came to you in, in the early stages. I had to think of a name. I, I sort of worked up a proposal 
when I, I knew Patrick Martins as well. Um, and so I said, hey, I'm, I think I'll, I'm going to send you a proposal about a show. So I worked up a, you know, an idea, which was, since culinary history was my passion, and there's really no outlet for culinary history, you know. And now there are more ways, and you can write books. And it was early on, 2009. So I wrote up a proposal, if you will, and said, oh, i got to come up with a name. <laughs> so I was sitting around thinking, what would be a logical name? And A Taste of the Past came up, and it stuck, and it's been that ever since, almost 10 years now. Uh, so for the audience uh, listening in, uh, give them an elevator pitch of your show. A Taste of the Past is a look in a, it's a culinary journey. It's a weekly journey through culinary history. We look at um, ancient history. We look at Rome and, and Mesopotamia, the beginnings of food. And we also look at where the hot dog came from. Or, oh, tailgating? Yeah, what's the history of tailgating? You know, after 10 years of doing shows and so many shows, I kind of, I have to look at the list myself. All the time. <laughs> right? Yeah. And, yeah, and, and Coney Island Hot Dog. I'm doing a, a recording of Coney Island Hot Dogs tomorrow. Guys resurrecting the Feltman's Coney Island Hot Dog. Wow. So I thought, wow, that's, that's history worthy, you know? And then again, we'll talk about, um, you know, what did the Roman soldiers eat? When, you know, how did they support their armies? So there's a lot of, it covers a lot of territory. Can't even pretend to know everything about each of those. I try to do a lot of research. Um, you know, in the week or two before reading a lot of books, especially if the if the guest has a book, you know, reading through the book, you want to sound like you know what you're talking about, and you have to have a good question to ask, so you don't sound like you're coming totally out of left field. I can't play Larry King to them. <laughs> <laughs> it, we don't have enough time, too. We have to get right to the to the point, and um, it's just been it's been a wonderful experience. I have learned some every week. I learn something new. Um, I got a chance to listen to episode 337, the history, the history of art and tailgating, uh, which is the, the history of the art. The history and the art. Yeah, thank you. The history and the art. <laughs> the history tailgating. and the art of tailgating. There is there go. an art to tailgating? <laughs> <laughs> sure there's an art to tailgating. Right. <laughs> Tell me some things about like the history of tailgating. Oh, it was back in, in the late 1800s, the Yale, um, Harvard, the Harvard game. Well, actually, it wasn't uh, Harvard-Yale first, but then it, you know, it evolved into that, and they were the first ones to... Um, bring picnics. Of course, they brought picnics in horse-driven <laughs> wagons. <Yeah>. You know, <laughs> <laughs> wasn't a Cadillac Escalade. <laughs> and um, and and after and a, and a chuck wagon pulled up, and that's how a chuck wagon developed. It was a like a restaurant on wheels. You know, it could it could ride up, and you could have all the food in there, and just you know open the flap and and start serving food from the the wagon, just as people had their picnic baskets and. The other team, but they noticed people who had who came from out of town to to watch the game. They got off the train, so they didn't have their picnic baskets, and they went over and they offered them some food from their picnic basket, and which was kind of the start of the whole communal sharing. That's what tailgating is all about. Um, so we learned it's a lot of communal dining and sharing, and not just bringing your own separate meal and eating your own food. But, you know, you kind of always looking next door to see, hmm, what are they serving? What are they eating? And you start up a conversation. You give them a little something of yours. They'll give you something back of theirs. And and it's a real community-type sharing meal. That's good. Yeah, we're going to play a clip from episode 337. All right. And this is uh, Lynn Ryan, who was the guest. And she 
actually hopefully has a book forthcoming, Tailgate Buzz. There we go. Let's go. There's indeed a, a large consumption of alcohol these days on the parking lots. Um, more so, I think, than in the past. They passed a law that they don't allow alcohol in the stadiums, in most stadiums, the college stadiums. Right. Most college stadiums do not have alcohol. Most, uh, I believe most NFL stadiums do allow alcohol. But there are becoming more and more sober parties, especially at colleges. There, right. You know, each college has... Um, a group of people who do not drink for whatever reason, and they provide parties. And people are more and more children are coming to tailgates. So a lot of people are choosing not to drink because it's not about, you know, getting drunk and and debauchery. It's more about enjoying yourself before you go into the game. Who right. wants to be drunk and right. spend all that money um, to go watch? You know, I discovered your show, and one thing about the, the beautiful world of podcasting and doing the, then doing this show, like I, it's my job to discover new topics and new genres and new hosts and listen to new shows. And I came across your podcast from the Apple charts. It was like in the oh. Apple top cooking uh, or food food charts, and I was like, "Hey, this is, seems really interesting." And I listened. I was like, "Oh man, I want to have her on the show." What does it feel like to have something that, as a creative? It's our job to take what the universe gives us in our head to manifest it into something physical, to make it and send it out to the world. But the best feeling is having it be well-received. How does it feel to have your show be so well-received and so loved? It, it never ceases to amaze me. Because, you know, as you know, I mean, I go, you do your podcasts, um, you know, individually from a, you know, your own location. I actually go into a studio to do the podcast. But you, no matter what, I sit there and I think, is anyone out there listening? So it always amazes me to, you know, see any analytics and find out that people are actually listening to my part, or down, having them downloaded on, you know, every week into their, whatever, their iPhones or, you know, their smartphones. The other thing is, it's like, be careful what you wish for. I love it. And it's like a drug and I can't quit it. And I guess I'll just keep on doing it. All right. So, Linda, we've come to a point in the show called our podcasters picks. Now, this is when I asked today's special guests to give me their top three favorite podcasts that they love that we should be listening to. So, Linda, take it away. Picking only three, Corey. I know. I know. I'm sorry. Who's your favorite child? I'm sorry. (laughs) Um, I really enjoy listening to Sporkful. Oh, yeah. Dan Pashman. He just, he tell he interviews the greatest people. He tells the greatest stories. He tells, it's, you know, it's a lot about him telling the story, but then he goes out in the field and he gets interviews for he doesn't or one of somebody does and gets interviews from the field. Really love it. I think it's really good. Another one I like a lot is um, Gravy from the Southern Foodways. Uh, and, and I think that squeezed out something else that I, I liked a lot. Um, we will include gastropod. With, t- t- tell me about gastropod. Gastropod is is sort of like a combination of science and food, and and they delve into it's Nicola Twilley and Cynthia Graber, and they kind of delve into the science and kind of some of the weird topics and background of food, and it's it's always entertaining. They really do a lot of work. They do a lot of research on their shows. Yeah. Highly edited. And Linda, before we get out of here, why do you podcast? 
Because I'm addicted? No. <laughs> because I love learning something new every time. Every time I, I, you know, I always say, oh, that's it. I'm so tired. This, is, this took so much work. And then the next week, I just I go at it again because I need that input. I love learning from people. And, and I, as I said, I learn something every single week. Linda, thank you so much for being here today on OPP. I really appreciate it. I'm a big fan of your show and My really pleasure. and a big fan of what you do in the podcasting space. You're really dope. My pleasure, Corey. Thank you. We out of here. Thank you all so much for tuning in to another episode of OPP and to our special guest, Linda Palaccio. You can listen to A Taste of the Past on Apple, Spotify, and wherever else you listen to podcasts. This episode was mixed by Joshua Coleman. Music for this episode was produced by Richie Quake. And are you down with OPP? If so, please be sure to leave us a five-star rating in the Apple app and let me know your favorite podcast in the review section. Lastly, before we get out of here, check out my other show, Silent Giants, which highlights the superstars behind the scenes of popular culture. And you can find Silent Giants on Apple, Spotify, and wherever else you listen to podcasts. I'm your host, Corey Cambridge. Pop bless. Till next time. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com.